And the Lord said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. The word of the Lord. And let's pray again. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it always guides us right. We thank you, Lord, that whenever we turn to it in faith and in obedience, Lord, we can be positively certain that it will guide us where you want us to go. And so, Father God, I pray today that under the inspiration and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, your word would be to us that which you desire it to be. 
that it would search us and that it would know us, that it would tell us that there be any wicked way in us and that it would lead us today in the way everlasting. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is perhaps one of the most uh, well-known parables of Jesus. And for good reason, it's a great story. It's a good story. It's a story of great loss and it's a story of great redemption. It's a story of a great fall and a story of an even greater restoration. In fact, the parable of the prodigal son is really the story of the Bible in miniature. It's about our reckless and irrational flight from God, and it's about God's unvanquishable mercy towards those who don't even come close to deserving it. And given that we're being brief today with the children here in front of us, I have three short avenues to walk down that I hope will help us to understand what this parable uh, is about. And the first of these avenues, the first of these uh, lines of direction is this. The parable is spoken primarily to the Pharisees. So I want to talk first about who this, who this parable is directed to primarily. If you go back to chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15, and what we read there, it isn't difficult to hear the echoes of Exodus 15 and of Exodus 16, as well as Psalm 78 and Psalm 95. The people of Israel are grumbling again. We read in verse 1, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And grumbling is always biblically the fruit of unbelief. And unbelief means that a person doesn't understand. They don't get what's going on. And these Pharisees and scribes, they don't understand God. They don't understand the economy of heaven. They are precisely like the older son at the end of the story, who's not only bewildered by the father's lavish mercy, but they're offended deeply by the father's action towards the younger son. The older son we read in verse 28 was angry at the father's reception of the sinner. He's grumbling. He's unable to delight in the character of his father. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get what his father is all about. And what makes the failure of his misunderstanding of his father much, much worse is that the theological gap, this lacuna, the missing knowledge of his father is replaced with an overinflated preoccupation with his own self-worth and with his own desires. Look at what he says in verse 29 of chapter 15. I have served you, Father. I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat. I deserve a party with my friends. And this is precisely the, the plight of the Pharisee. All things considered, the Pharisee says, I'm a pretty decent individual. I'm a pretty good guy. I deserve something. 
And so the Pharisee distinguishes himself from the sinner. The Pharisee nurses himself on some secret idea, or not so secret as it were, idea of self-worth and self-value. And such a person will never be able to fathom the content of the gospel, that God delights to show mercy to those who can never, ever come close to deserving it. And they can't fathom it because they're never in that place to embrace it. They're always waiting to impress God somehow. Lest any of us should be guilty of uh, reversing the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And while refusing to lift our eyes to heaven, saying to the Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. This parable, inasmuch as it's written to the Pharisees, it is written to you, and it's written to me. It's written to all of us who struggle with trying to impress God somehow with our lives. Hey, God. Hey, God, we say, did you count all the hours that I read my Bible this week? God, did you notice the other morning how long I prayed for? Did you catch that, God? Did you catch that when I was praying this week how fervently I prayed for my enemies? Hey, God, have you noticed how self-controlled I've been, Lord? Have you seen this, Lord? Do you see the way that I tame my tongue? Someone dug into me the other day. I didn't say a word, Lord. I've been pretty pure, haven't I, God? I've been pretty good. Lord, you must be really pleased with the way I'm conducting my life. In fact, Lord, I think I can begin to feel your smile. Lord, I think I feel your smile upon me. Have you noticed the way I've been performing for you, Lord? Lord, I, I think I feel your pleasure in me. And whenever we start to feel like this, whenever we start to think like this, whenever we slip into this mode of thought, it's never because of the Lord. It's not because of some cruel Roman gibbet. It's not because of the sheer naked mercy of God and God's sheer favor and pleasure in us. It's because of how we're performing before the Lord that we sense he's pleased with us. And at that moment, when our performance slips, at the moment we start not doing so well before God, then all of our sense of the pleasure of God just vanishes. And so the parable today is addressed to those who wrongly try to commend themselves to God. But secondly, the parable is also directed to those uh, same people to give a true understanding of the human condition. And so to correct the pharisaical misunderstanding, Jesus paints a picture of the human plight. And the human plight is the plight of the prodigal. And the point of today's passage today is that we are all prodigal sons. There is none of us who is righteous, no, not one. There is none of us who does what's right. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And this is the thing precisely that we have done. We have taken together and individually, we have taken our inheritance, the gifts that our Father has so lavishly given us, and we have wasted them on the wrong thing. Namely, we wasted them upon ourselves. The prodigal son is a story of great waste. 
Just like the Father in this parable, the Lord gives us gifts. He gives us a gift of a mind. He gives us the gift of a heart. He gives us a body. And he gives us all of these creaturely gifts. And he says to us that these gifts will only have meaning for us. And they'll only have purpose for us as they are used for him in his service, according to his ways, according to his rules, and ultimately for his glory. He says to us that these gifts will be fruitful and they will in fact be wonderful when he is ultimately the aim and the chief end, when we use the creature to enjoy God. Adam, Eve, look at this garden that I've made for you. Look at all these trees and these fruits. These are gifts for you, but use them, Adam and Eve, in the way that I have determined. Use them according to my word. But instead of surrendering to the Lord's judgment, we tear the gifts of God from the purpose of God. And instead of God being the aim, instead we use the creature to find our own pleasure in ourselves. We wrest the garden from God. And we make our pleasure and our own sense of fulfillment the ultimate aim. And whenever we do that, just like the prodigal son, it invariably leads to the gifts being squandered and wasted. Whenever we take our intellect or our will or our affections or our bodies, whenever we take any of these creaturely goods that are around us and we use them without reference to God's rules, they will ultimately be squandered and wasted and destroyed. Whenever we take our money, whenever we take our time, our sexuality, Whenever we take any of our appetites or any of the creaturely gifts that God surrounds us with, whenever we divorce these from God, we don't make him the chief end and aim. Whenever we say, I'll use these gifts as I please, as I see fit, as feels good to me, then we squander them and we waste them, even where they seem temporally to be flourishing. There's a lot of apparent flourishing of gifts in the world. There's a lot of ungodly people walking in ungodly ways that seem very, very happy. They seem, in fact, exuberant in their forgetfulness of God. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is puzzled over the prosperity of the wicked. Why do those, he says, who reject the word of the Lord... Why do those who reject the word of the Lord seem to be so happy? Why do they flourish in the way that they do? They are lavish with gifts and they seem to prosper. They don't acknowledge God. They seem to be glowing in their happiness for life. But then the psalmist suddenly understands all such flourishing, all such happiness is but for a moment. For God, we read, has set them in slippery places, and their enjoyment of the gifts will turn suddenly to ruin. For the gift of the Father was never made to be enjoyed without God, and it will never last without God. The gift 
is a plant that must thrive in the soil of God to flourish forever. And when that gift is uprooted from the soil of God, it will eventually wither and die for the wages of sin is death. You'll notice where the, the prodigal son ends up in verse 16 of chapter 15 of the parable. He squanders all these gifts, all these things, and he ends up where? He ends up longing to be fed with the food of pigs. And even that he could not obtain. To the end of rejecting God is to dehumanize. The end of rejecting God and his ways is to make us less than beasts, attempting to enjoy the creature outside of God always, always, always leads to poverty and shame. It may take years to get there. It may take a lifetime to get there, but the destination is sure. After the squandering of the goods comes poverty. After the squandering of the gifts, comes nakedness and shame. That is the far country. That is life without God as our aim. This is life without God's word hemming us in and guiding us down the path of life. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes us rich. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes us rich and he adds no sorrow to it, we read. And so the Lord paints a picture for us of the true predicament of the human race. And finally, the parable is directed to a true understanding of the Father's mercy. Calvin rightly notes that the very heart of the parable is this. That which sums it all up comes in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, far, far in the distance, the son begins to limp home. Hunger, the reformer says, has been his best teacher. And now with great fear and faint hope, he treads back to the very home he's rejected. Notice what happens though. Before the son utters a words, all those words that he so carefully rehearsed, he's made a great speech. He's gonna persuade his father to take him in. Before he utters a word, the father is seized with compassion. Luke uses the aorist tense here, and the sense is very strong. There's great urgency. The father is getting choked up with profound depth of feeling. The father's longing, his longing to have mercy upon his child is so strong that it, it, he acts before his son even makes it home. You see, as the narrative goes, the father has no clear idea why the son's returning. He has no idea why his son is coming down that long road. He's not aware of the conversation that the son has had with himself. He doesn't know his son's change of heart. All that the father sees is his son's reduced state. He sees his degradation. He sees his shame. He sees his poverty. He sees his brokenness. And that is enough for the father. And his motion towards his embrace, his kiss of acceptance, and all of these merciful acts, they precede his son's confession. 
They come before the son's confession, and when the son finally confesses, his father cuts him short. Go get the fatted calf. That's enough, he says. And the point of the story, my brothers and sisters, is that the son doesn't have to wring compassion from his father's heart. He doesn't need to persuade his father to be merciful to him through some long and prepared speech, but rather the compassion of the father is the overflow of the father's ready heart. In the words of Isaiah 30, 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. The Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. My brothers and sisters, today I can say to you with great certainty, it is the Lord's nature to show you compassion. He delights in mercy. This is what he delights to do. He longs to show compassion and mercy to people. He delights to restore. He delights to heal. He delights to save. And once he sets his heart on saving a soul, nothing in heaven and nothing upon earth will stop him. And so today, let us, all of us, all of us who are children of the far country, we have all been there. And all of us, to our great shame and, and hurt, we continue to go back from time to time. Let's today return to the Father of mercy. And in our hearts and minds, even now, let's bring to him, the Father of mercy, all of those who need to find themselves wrapped up in the Father's compassionate arms. And let's pray today for ourselves, and let's pray today for those that we love. These words of the psalmist, have mercy upon me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, O Lord, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin and cleanse me from my iniquity. O God, in your mercy, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.